We're starting this morning with a new series called Soul Shift Consumer to Steward. There's a booklet like this. If you didn't get one, it's about 94 pages, I think, all the way in the back. It'll help you track what's happening week to week as we go through this important shift in our lives. Let me try to set the context for it. About five or six years ago in our church, we started to think about spiritual formation maybe a little bit differently. It occurred to us that so much of... um, of discipleship today is either cognitive development or behavior modification. We're either trying to inform the mind saying, learn this, or we're trying to get the body to do things saying, use these disciplines and do this. But in the New Testament, when Jesus talks about being transformed, he's talking not only about changing the way we think and act, he's a talking about changing the way we are instinctively. So long before we think or do anything, we are fundamentally different people. So we started to ask, what would the changes be that God would try to make in our lives as we're being transformed? I mean, how would I know? What would I look for? And we identified seven such changes, which we call soul shifts. That is, they occur at the deepest level of our being, and over time, they work their way to the surface where they're very evident and everyone can see them. But they always start deep in the soul. We talked about things like the shift from slave to child, or the shift from me to we, or from being sheep to being shepherds, as in the case of last year's emphasis. This year, I want to focus on the shift from being consumers to being stewards of everything. On the screen, there's a verse that Peter said to the church in exile 2,000 years ago. He said, God has given each of you something from his great variety of gifts. Use them well to serve one another. Eugene Peterson, who translates this verse in the message, puts it a little differently. He says, simply be generous with different things that God gave you. Love this phrase, passing them around so all get in on it. Be generous with what you have, pass it around so everybody gets some. Please note a few things about stewardship right off the bat from this verse. First, everybody has something. Now, you may not be the thing you're looking for, so you may be looking for one thing, but what you have is actually something else. But whether you see it or not this morning, everybody has something. Stewardship, then, second, is simply the act of taking what you have and serving people that God is trying to serve. Take whatever you have and use it to serve one another. So everybody has something. Stewardship is simply the art of getting in between God and the people he is trying to serve and using whatever you have to serve those people. That makes sense? If that's the meaning of a steward, then a, con- then a consumer is not a spender, a hoarder, or a waster. Those are expressions of consumerism, but consumerism is fundamentally keeping for oneself what was intended for somebody else. Sometimes we buy it and use it up ourselves, and sometimes we hoard it ourselves. And so as I say, those are expressions of consumerism, 
But if stewardship means taking what I have and getting in between God and the thing he is doing and bringing everything I have to bear on the things he is doing, then being a consumer means taking whatever I have and keeping it for my own purposes. Think of stewardship as something like an economy. It's a new economy, only it's not money. It's an economy of everything. Power, connections, talent, intellectual property, assets, skill, time, even grace itself. Stewardship is the economy of anything. So this morning when you heard we're going to study stewardship, you may have said to yourself immediately, well, I know what this is about. This is about money. So we'll change the subject. I was, I was in a church a few years ago, sitting in the back, just enjoying this. It was an almost all black church. There were, I think, two white people there, me and my friend. And, and as you know, in these churches, when a preacher gets on a roll, they talk back. So he was on a roll that day, that night. He started yelling, God wants everything you got. And they went, amen. Not like here. They were yelling. And he said, God wants all your time. And they said, amen. He said, God wants all your talent. They said, amen. He said, God wants all your money. And it was dead quiet. <laughs> and somebody way in back stood up and said, ain't got no money. Really loud. And everybody went, amen, amen. <laughs> That's how you may feel. You may feel, wait a second, man. If this is about money, I ain't got no money. So let's change the subject. Let's think of it as food. <laughs> there is a story that appears in all four Gospels. In fact, it is the only miracle outside of the resurrection that occurs in all four Gospels. Do you know what it is? It's the feeding of the 5,000. Only it wasn't 5,000. Matthew says it was 5,000 men plus children closer to about 20,000. Nobody knows why that's the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels. I'm wondering if it's because like the resurrection itself, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 was never intended to be something that just happened to Jesus. It's something that happens to every Christian life when it is lived well. It is a way of framing what it means to be a Christian in the world today. Perhaps the feeding of the 5,000 is a model then of what it means to have stuff, even if you ain't got no money and get in between God and the thing he is doing and bring everything that you have to bear on that. Now, the way the story happens is the same in all four Gospels. I've put a script on the board so you can see it. It starts with Jesus teaching the multitude all day long. You'd think my sermons are long, man. 
And it was like late in the afternoon and people were tired of listening. The batteries were low and they're ready to go back. And all of a sudden the disciples come to Jesus and said, send the crowd away so they can go get themselves something to eat. And Jesus said, they don't need to go away. You feed them. Philip's the first one to fight back. He says, wait a second. I mean, this is 28 months' wages won't feed all these people. Now listen to what he says next. Are we to go and spend money on that much and give it to them? <laughs> you hear what he's doing? No, 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 no. My money is my money. Send them away. They get their own. Jesus says, well, what do you have? Go and see. Well, by now the disciples have taken a little inventory, and so Andrew speaks up and says, well, we have here five loaves of bread and two fish, but what is that among so many? And Jesus says, bring it to me. And the rest, as you know, is legendary history. So what we have happening in the story of the feeding of the 5,000 is we have Jesus giving the food to the multitude. But when you read this in the Gospel of John, watch the details start to change. You'll hear things you didn't hear before. First of all, John is the only one that tells us when Jesus said, you feed them, he said this because he knew exactly what he was going to do. Let me translate that. He was not only interested in feeding the multitude, he had something else in mind that he was going to do on that day. Second, John is the only one that tells you that the food the disciples found did not come from the people, it came from a single person, a child. Philip said, here is a boy or a servant, however you translate the word, and he has but five small barley loaves. Barley was the common staple used in the food for the poor. So here is a poor little boy with a tiny little lunch. We didn't take a collection. This isn't a gift from the many. This is a gift from the one. Third, John is the only one that tells you that after he fed the multitude, he said to the disciples, I don't want any to be wasted. Go pick it up. This confounds a lot of people because we like to compare the feeding of the 5,000 to the use of manna in the Old Testament. But in the case of the manna, he told them not to save any or it would spoil. But in the feeding of the 5,000, he says, let nothing be wasted. Pick it up. As if he has some future use for it. 
and forth, John is the only one to tell you what happens to the multitude. All the other disciples say they just picked up the food and that was the end of the day. John says, no, sir, that's not what happened. After he fed the 5,000, they tried to make him king. Why not? I mean, this dude is printing money. Why not make him king? And it says Jesus slipped out from their number and vanished. Let's play a game. What happens if the boy decides to not give his lunch up? <laughs> he can do this, you know. He can say, I packed it. I worked for it. It's mine. Or let's say he brings it to Jesus, and Jesus says to himself, I'm the only one working today. The rest of y'all are sitting around. Why don't we just eat it between the two of us? What if this happens? No, really, play for a moment. Step back and see what happens to the dynamic. If Jesus and the boy keep the lunch for themselves, first of all, it never gets multiplied. So now you got two people who are overeating and two people who are a bunch of people that don't have anything. You suddenly have the haves and the have-nots. So the moment you have the haves and the have-nots, you have an economy of scarcity, not of abundance. And the moment there's an economy of scarcity, you have people who with have who are greedy and those without it who envy them. You have some who are eating everything, over-consuming too much and getting fat, and you have the rest of them with nothing to eat, and they're angry. Suddenly, instead of the body coming together, we have people comparing. Some are angry, some are afraid, some are jealous. They're starting to point fingers. They're starting to find ways to sabotage what they have, and Jesus and the boy convince themselves this is as it should be because we are the working class and the rest of them have just sat there all day and done nothing. Pretty soon you have a few people who are consuming things conspicuously and you have the rest of the people who don't have anything using credit cards, calling Jimmy John's, trying to keep up with the haves. Why, let's say the have-nots have on average $10,000 worth of debt on their credit cards. Let's say on average that the have-nots spend $600,000 in a lifetime. I'm not making the number up on interest alone. Why not? They have it. Now, it should be clear from playing the game of what happens if Jesus and the boy keep the lunch for themselves that the actions of a couple of individuals always have social implications. No, no, let me say that in slow motion. Stewardship might be an individual act, but it has public ramifications. So when we say, no, I don't have anything, or there's just a few of us who want to do this right, Steve, what will that be among so many? Remember this. 
If two people keep their lunch, everything changes. But when two people give it up, God does something that only God can do. It should be clear also that this is exactly the economy that we have inherited in the American West. And it is the economy that we have created, is it not? It's an economy of haves and have-nots, of those who quote-unquote say that they work for everything they have, which surely isn't true. There are others all around the world who work even harder and have far less. And there are the have-nots there is overconsumption and there is envy. And there are people keeping up or trying to with those who consume conspicuously. No, no, the decisions of a few have powerful ramifications, and this is precisely the economy that we have inherited. The call for consumer to steward is a call for a quiet revolution among a few people to look at what God has given them and use it differently, are you in? How does this happen? All four Gospels tell us the same thing. They say Jesus did not just feed the 5,000. They say if you slow it down in frame-by-frame frame sequence, what he did was he took it. That's take, by the way. That's two eight. He blessed it. He broke it or he multiplied it. He gave it to the disciples who then gave it to the multitude and when they were done, they left it to be used, I presume, tomorrow. So you don't think that I'm just drawing this out of thin blue air. All four Gospels have exactly the same five words in exactly the same sequence. Not only that, but whenever Jesus goes to do something really big, like the Last Supper, he does exactly the same thing. All four Gospels tell us that when Jesus served the Last Supper, he didn't just say, here's the bread, here's the wine, have at it. He took it, he blessed it, he broke it, he gave it away. On the road to Emmaus, when Jesus was walking with the disciples after the resurrection, they didn't know it was him, remember? And he went into a home, and they put bread in front of him. This is what the text says. And he took it, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to them, and then their eyes were opened. 30 years later, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul would look back at the night of the Last Supper and he would note that Jesus did not just serve bread and wine wholesale. No, no, this is Paul's words. For on the night he was betrayed, our Lord took the bread, he blessed it, and after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to them. So I'm asking myself, what is this process, this sequence of taking something and blessing it and breaking it or multiplying it and then giving it away so that some could be left for the next generation. And I begin to wonder if this is not 
what it means to be a steward. That is just a lunch. And what is this among so many? Until he takes it, blesses it, breaks it, gives it away, then everybody's eaten. What is this? Bread and wine. We eat this every day. Yes, but tonight he will take it, bless it, break it, and then give it to you, and this ordinary thing will become holy. I begin to wonder if so much of the things that we possess seem to us either mundane or insufficient. We have skills. We have connections. We have grace itself. We have margins. We have abilities. And they seem to us just ordinary parts of our life. But they've never been made holy. And sometimes we possess things, lots of things, that seem too small for a need that is so large. And I begin to wonder what would it be like if we took everything that we had and we took it and we blessed it and then we multiplied it and then we gave it away so that there was some left over for people tomorrow. Are you still tracking? We have far more things than we have consecrated. The act of making holy what is mundane is part of what it means to live as a steward. Let me talk about these for a minute. That okay? I'm going to anyway, so just nod. Whenever we take something, we share in the power, the responsibility, and the reward. So often when I talk to people about their spiritual gifts, let, for instance, we will frequently say, well, no, I don't really have many things that I do very well. All that means is that I haven't found them yet. And you better be careful if you find them because if you find them and you take them, you're responsible for them. But you also have the power and you also share in the reward. So part of taking something is acknowledging that God has given us something and taking ownership of it. And whenever you own something, you share in the power, in the responsibility, and in the reward. So all the idea of saying, well, everything that I have, it's not really mine. It all belongs to God. No, no, that's not a steward. That's called a manager. A manager is always managing somebody else's assets. But a steward is a part owner. So I used to look at my abilities, for instance, as something that were all God and not me, but all that meant was 
I had all the responsibility, but I didn't have any of the power and I didn't get any of the reward. But when you start to see it as a partnership and say, whatever I have, I own 49% and God is the 51. Then what this means is I'm having conversations in the morning, you guys, right over there about my abilities now. But it's a fundamental. I'm not asking, what do you want me to do? I'm asking, what do you think we should do? This is our ability. I'm on the hook, God. But you are too. There's only things that only you know how to do and I can't do those things. And so there will come times when I hit my head on the wall and I will say, I am out of resources. I need you to step up and only you can do that. He has ownership. But there's some things that he expects me to do or the project cannot go forward. I have ownership. And if it goes well, I don't step aside and say, oh, it was none me at all. It was all God. I deflect the glory onto God and he deflects it back. You say, where are you getting at? That's the Trinity. Jesus said, I have nothing of my own. It all belongs to the Father. And yet he said, the Father will glorify me. I suspect that we have created a culture of Christians. I'm looking at a bunch of us right now who have never fully taken ownership of the things that God has given us because we know when we do, we're accountable for them. Are we close? Move on, Steve. To bless it is to live humbly with the thing that God has given me, which means primarily a couple things. I will be grateful for what God has given me. It says in the passage, when Jesus took the bread, he lifted it up and he blessed it. It's an ancient custom among Jewish rabbis. The word that is used literally means he pronounced a eulogy. All that means is he said nice things about this food. He has five loaves and two fish, and he holds it up in front of the Father and says, thank you. This is enough. But it isn't enough because there's 20,000 people out there who need to eat. The ability to look at a need so great and hold what seems to you small up to the Father and say, I know it seems like it's not enough, but this is plenty. Thank you for this is to live humbly with that. It is to live within the constraints of the thing that God has given us and not to overextend ourselves. To multiply something is the art of creating more. I'm calling it discipline. 
That means I have to take risks. I have to put it out there and risk losing it. And it means I have to get really, really good at making more of it, whatever it is. And why? Because the time will come when I want to give it, which is generosity. So the reason I make more of anything is so that I have more to give when it is time and ultimately more to leave to the next generation, which I'm calling empowerment. All right. Take a break. Breathe for a second. I got a watch for Christmas. About every two minutes it says, breathe, breathe. I'm like, dismiss, dismiss, dismiss. <laughs> Here's what I see when I look at the process. Pay attention, the process of stewardship. First, stewardship is not primarily an act of giving. Stewardship is a process from taking something to leaving it. I went to see a financial planner about 13, 14 years ago. This is what they asked me. What are your goals when you retire? Which they said by my income meant I would be 106. I said, I think I have three. One is healthcare is going to be an issue for me. I'm a diabetic. Two is I want to travel a little bit more than I already have. I mean, out of the country. And three, and most of all, I want to be able to give more. Because I've seen senior adults who have given their whole lives and suddenly when they retire, they go on a fixed income and they can't afford to give anything. I watched them about a month ago when we were trying to raise money for Senda DeVita. Some of them literally with tears in their eyes said, no, I gave my whole life. I can't give this right now. This is medicine for me. I don't want to be in that situation. I want to be able to be as generous when I'm 75 as I am in my 50s. And you know what they said? They said, well, there are things you can control and things you can't. You can't control the market, but you can control your level of risk. And based upon the amount you're given, you better really, really risk. <laughs> I said, why? And this is what they said. Because, Steve, if you want to be able to give more when you're older, you better multiply it while you still have an income. And while you're multiplying it, you better live within your means and the constraints. The trouble is, so many of us, the bubble of what it takes for us to be happy is getting larger and larger and larger until we can't bless it anymore. And we don't realize that we are robbing from our 60s in our 30s what we wish someday we could give because we will not live within the means. It's not enough. This person said, if you want to give as much as you want to give, you better be rich 
And I thought to myself, how come no one in the church said that? Frequently in the church, if someone is multiplying their talent or multiplying their intellect or multiplying their money, we look down on that. We see that as something wrong with them. And I wonder if it's not really more a case of envy, you guys. It's possible that these people are doing this for better, nobler purposes. Maybe this person is right. The process of being a steward is a lifetime process. It takes years to be. What this means is that some of you right now, beyond your ability to tithe every single week, you may not be in a position to give tons of stuff right now because you've already noticed in your 30s, you never have money at the right time in your life, do you? You never have it when you have children and you need it. No, 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 no. You have it when you're 60 and the kids are gone, the house is paid for and the cars or truck is paid for. That's when you have it. So you may not be able to do everything you want to do now, but if you live within your means and you get busy making more, then you can do what you want to do later. Are you still with me? Let me push it. Stewardship is not primarily about money. It's about everything. Let me change the subject. In my 20s, I have to find out what I'm good at. I have to own it. I can't waste my 20s and 30s in a false humility saying, oh, no, 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 I'm not that good at that. No, no. Yes, you are. Own it. I have to develop the one or two things I'm good at. I should not spread my life in 10 different directions. I should narrow my focus and bless it and stay within my lane. I should then develop my ability so I don't just get good, I master it. Why? Because the time will come when I go to give it, I have more to give. You might have noticed that the next generation doesn't ask you for something you ain't that good at. If you want to be asked for something, you better have a ton of it. Which means you better nail your focus and own it. Are you still with me? It occurred to me as a preacher, I will never be rich. I've accepted that. But I've learned something. But in, I've learned that in your 50s, you have more power than you have in your 30s. In your 30s, you want it. But in your 50s, you actually have it. The trouble is, you didn't get it all at once, and so it crept up on you, and you're not aware of it. So rather than just go, oh, I don't have any power, just here to help other people, why don't I just say, no, no, God has over time entrusted me with status or power. I have more clout now that I'm 62. I'll never be a king, but now I'm a kingmaker. but I'm gonna stay in my lane. I'm not gonna use the power I got in the pulpit in the boardroom. I don't have boardroom power. Keep your power in the domain where you earned it. 
and I'm going to get even more powerful. Not on purpose. Not on purpose. By just doing whatever God has given me. And why am I doing this? Because the time will come when I want to empower other people. And people, you can't empower others if you have nothing to empower them with. This isn't just a good heart. What you're giving them are assets. So you have to get them somewhere. There, I've changed the subject twice for you, once with talent, once with power, to show that this is a process of stewarding the things that God has given us so that we have something at the end of life to give to the next generation. Which means stewardship is really a disposition, isn't it? When you get a promotion or you get a raise in pay or suddenly you get a lot of attention, a consumer thinks first, huh, how is this going to change my life? How will this make my life better? But a steward fundamentally thinks differently. They think, huh, what am I supposed to do with this? Can you see that's a different question? How am I supposed to put this in between Jesus and the multitude? I don't know the answer, but if I got the question right, I bet I'll get it eventually which means, of course, that stewardship is not really innate, is it? It's learned. It's learned. We have to start with little things that we have right now. Remember, everybody has something. We have to start with the little things that we have, and we have to ask the question, what is God trying to do? in my family, in my church, in my neighborhood, in our city, in our school, what is God trying to do? And now that I know what I have, how do I get in between that and what God is trying to do and help him? We must never think that we need a raise or we need more power or we need to be mega talented. The truth is, if I do not learn this with what little I have, I will never learn it with everything I want. I promise you. So I must start today. I must say, God, I need a different mindset. I have to learn this. I want to go on this journey. Are you in? Church, are you in? Yeah, one more time. Are y'all in? This is a journey. It may take us a while to get there. But imagine what happens to your family, to the church, to the community if we begin to steward what we were once keeping. I'll tell you what happens. It gets multiplied. Every time you steward something, there is more. And whenever there is more, everybody gets some. And when everybody gets some, the community comes together. And when the community comes together, there's a ton left over for the next generation.